to introduce Melissa Dolan, uh, attorney at law. She is an associate at Fox Rothschilds here in the city. Uh, Ms. Dolan studied fine art and design and uh, prior to coming into the law, so she really knows your experience very well. So she, she went to the uh, school for art as well. She was a former legal intern for the Institute of Museum and Library Services in Washington, D.C., where she was able to combine her interest in art with her career as a lawyer to help benefit those involved in commercial litigation as well as copyright and trademark cases. So she has so much to offer all of us from the standpoint of understanding the legal implications of being a creative person in today's economy. So I want you to give her a big welcome and um, enjoy her talk. My name is Melissa Dolan, and I am a second-year associate at Fox Rothschild here in Philadelphia. I am in the litigation department, so that means is I'm a courtroom attorney. And what's interesting about my background as a litigator is I often see when things go wrong. When you're in court, it's not normally for a good thing. Um, the, corporate attorney, the corporate attorneys normally joke that they build things, they draft the contracts, they get everything going, and then litigators tear it all apart. And that's somewhat true, unfortunately. What's great about that is I have some inside knowledge on how you can prevent things from going wrong. I know the red flags, I know what you can do to prevent yourself from ending up in those courtroom situations. And it really has helped me give advice to other, to people of my clients and just general artists in the area. So like she said, I have a background in the arts. I studied electronic time-based media at Carnegie Mellon. And I realized one day that it was very hard for me to make art for other people. And I realized I wanted to go to the business end of art. I had taken a legal studies course and I wanted to combine the two, my passion for the two. And that's why I ended up going to law school and why I'm here today to hopefully make you the smartest artist you can be. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the thing is, we have a lot to cover today. I want to go into contract law, copyright law, trademark law. But there's, I could talk to you all for two hours just on contract law. I could talk to you all day about contract law. Obviously, that wouldn't be good for you. That wouldn't be good for me. So I'm going to give you just a little insight into each of these different areas. And if you have questions, feel free to hold them and we'll talk about it at the end. You can email me. You all have my contact information for my business card. Or um, you can break call to me at the end of the presentation. We can talk in the hallway. So let's get started. So the best place to start is what is a contract? Most of you will have to sign contracts with summer internships or when you eventually leave more College of the Arts. So it's really important to understand what is a contract. A contract tells you about all the rights you will be acquiring or the rights that you'll be giving up. It's an agreement between two parties. So I'm not sure if any of you have been in a situation where you want to start a small business with a friend and you're thinking, oh, you know, I trust this person. This is great. We can just have this oral agreement. It's going to be fine. I know this person has my back. No need to worry. You know, a lot of people think that, but as a litigator, I've seen when that doesn't work out. So the first thing I want to remind you all of, and hopefully the one thing you'll take away from this presentation, is to put it in writing. If you're going to have an agreement with someone about some type of right they're requiring of yours, 
are afraid they're going to give up, you want to make sure it's in writing. We have a term as litigators, the four corners of the contract. So that needs to be in that contract, the explicit agreement. And you might think, oh, this is broad enough, it covers everything, but you need to be explicit. You need to state exactly what you think you're getting and what you want to be getting. Because if you don't, if you don't contract for it, you don't get it. You might think it's there, but if it's not actually in writing, then you're not gonna get it. So if you're in that situation where you're, work, where you're working with a friend, it's obviously better to put something in writing than not have anything in writing, but you wanna make sure that your contract actually says what you think it says. Sometimes you have something in your head and you think this expresses everything that you could possibly have meant, but because you're so used to it and you've read it so many times, you're just not sure that it does. So what I recommend is that if you can't hire an attorney, I obviously always recommend going to an attorney, but you might not be in that stage in your career where you can afford one. Ask a friend, ask a sibling, ask a colleague. Say, what do you, what do you get from this? What does this mean to you? Does this mean that I'm getting the rights to my copyright and trademark, or does this mean that I'm only getting some of the rights? Speaking about copyright and trademark law, I just told you contracts let you know about the rights that you're acquiring. And some of those rights might be intellectual property rights. So what is intellectual property? I started copyrights and trademarks because that's what I'll pretty much be focusing on. But it's really important to understand the difference between these different areas of intellectual property because most people just lump them all together and don't really understand the difference. So, have a little hypo for you. So let's say that you're so sick of cleaning your paintbrushes, you can't get the oil paint out, you're sick of it. So you decide to make an invention that's going to do it for you. You invent this thing that's gonna clean them out, you don't have to worry about it. You can get a patent for that invention, that non-obvious idea, a mechanical process, that's what you get a patent for, a non-obvious idea. And you think, this is so great, I'm so glad I never to do this again. I can make a billion dollars off this. I can send it, sell it to every artist in the country. So you decide to brand yourself. You say, okay, I'm gonna call this brushing up and I'm gonna sell it. Then you can get a, a trademark for the name brushing up, your brand. That's what you get a trademark for. And then you realize, okay, well, it's, it's clear to me how I use this machine, but I've used it a thousand times. If I sell this in the marketplace, someone might not know how to use it. So then you get, so you develop promotional, like DVDs, instructional pamphlets, promotional materials, all that you get a copyright for. And trade secrets I didn't put on there because it's not as important to your careers, but trade secrets are for restaurant down the street, their secret sauce. The ingredients they put in their secret sauce, that's a trade secret. So now that you have a general idea of the three areas that we're going to be talking about, what is a copyright? There are two main components, and these are really all you need to know. It's an original work of authorship fixed in a tangible medium, medium of expression. It sounds like gibberish, so I'm gonna explain what that means. So these are some examples of original works of authorship. Books, scripts, musical scores, artwork, designs, tests, computer code, rearrangements, or compilations. So computer code, you guys might be programming websites, HTML, all that, that's protected by copyright. 
That's an original form, that's an original work of authorship. Some of the others are more obvious. And then there are rearrangements or compilations. So let's say your favorite poet is Robert Frost, and you really think that all of his poems need to be read in a specific order. That's the only way people need to read them. So you would need to get permission from Robert Frost to put those poems in that book, to use his poetry. But then once you do, and you put them in that specific order, you own the copyright to that compilation, to that rearrangement, how you put them together. That's your original process. So I said it's original work of authorship, fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So how are you going to express that idea? How are you going to get it out there? Paper, canvas, video and audio tapes, DVDs, CD-ROMs, computer discs, computer memory. <clears throat> So these are how you're going to get your idea onto paper. So now that we know a few things that are copyrightable, it's also important to know what's not copyrightable. So for an example, a work not fixed in the tangible medium expression. So I have to, I'll go back to the other slide, but Mar Marina Abramovich, she's a performance artist. So this photograph is fixed in a tangible medium expression. She has a copyright in this or the photographer, however she arranged it with a photographer. But if she does not record her performance art, if she's just sitting across the table looking at someone, that's not fixed. Someone else can repeat that idea. She doesn't own that copyright. One of my favorite movies is Bring It On. If you don't write down the choreography moves and you just, a competitive dance team comes across the street, they see you doing your moves, they can use that in the competition too. It needs to be fixed in tangible medium of expression. Other examples of things that are not copyrightable. Titles, names, short phrases, and the list goes on. But if you think about it, you can't stop someone else from naming the movie Gravity. If you stop everyone from using, there's only so many words in the English language, so we can't stop people from reusing those titles. And they're also not creative. We don't, so that's not the purpose of copyright law. It's not to stifle all expression. It's really to protect your creativity. And this is a big one. Most people do not understand that copyright law does not protect ideas. So that, and it makes sense if you think about it, because copyright law only protects fixed, tangible expressions. So an idea, if it's not on paper, if you tell someone, I have this great idea for a painting, it's going to be this beautiful sunset, all these things, but you don't actually make that painting, someone else can do it. Or business ideas. Some people will think that they have this great business idea and that you can sue someone in copyright for stealing that idea. You just can't do it. It's just an idea. So unless there's something that you put out and you express that idea, it's not protected. Then works consisting of common property with no original authorship. These are things like calendars. These are height and weight charts. An ordinary calendar, no one can stop you from using it. Another concept I want to talk to you about is this area of the public domain. So copyright law protects you only for 70 years after the death of the author. So everyone in copyright law is called an author, even if you're an artist, we call you the author of the work. So it's the life of the author plus 70 years. So what happens is after those 70 years, after the author has died, it goes into this 
vast space called the public domain, which is not obviously a space, but that's what we call it. And after it's entered that area, anyone can use it. So Shakespeare, why is everyone allowed to perform Shakespeare? Because it's in the public domain. Shakespeare's been dead, there's no copyright, the family doesn't have it anymore, it's gone. Anyone can use Shakespeare. So, how many of you have ever obtained a copyright? This is a little bit of a trick question, you actually all have. By just putting your idea on the paper, you obtain a copyright. Everything that you've made is copyright protected. There's no requirement that you file anything or use any notice. So you don't need to use that little C symbol that you see everywhere. There's no need to go to the copyright office and file for registration. You automatically have a copyright in your work, which is pretty great. But there are reasons that you should use that notice and that you should file for registration. So why use a symbol? You just told me I didn't have to, I don't want to, why should I do it? So the reason why you should, if you're going to be displaying to a lot of people, is that when you do go into court, it imposes strict liability. So that means is that someone can't say, oh, I didn't know it was copyrighted. No one can say that in court, it's no longer a defense. There was a little copyright symbol, they need to, they know that, there's no innocent infringer. Makes your life a lot easier at the end of the day. And your lawyer will be very happy. So now you've told me, you've convinced me, I'm going to use the symbol, I want to be able to sue them. So what does it look like? You've seen the little C probably. You can use the word copyright, you can use the abbreviation C-O-P-R. But you also need to do more than that, that's not enough. You need to put the year of first publication. So when did you display the work to the public? And the name of the owner of the copyright. So for here, copyright 2014, Fox Rothschild LLP. That's what it should look like. So I know that why I want to use a C symbol and put the notice on there, but why would you register a copyright? So if someone infringes on your work, you must register your copyright in order to be able to sue them. So in order to get into the courtroom, you need to go to the copyright office first and prove that you actually own that work. And if you register within five years of when you display your work to the public, it establishes prima facie evidence of validity. So it gets rid of your, the need to prove to the court that you actually own it. Again, this is just something, that, what you should take from this is that, because it's a little bit of a complicated concept, the burden of proof and the legal jargon that goes into it, but you should just know that within the first couple of years of you displaying your work to the public, you really should register. Don't wait until someone infringes on your work. And then you also get more money. Copyright law is protected under federal law. So if you have registered your copyright, you'll get statutory damages, which can mean a lot more money for someone suing you just by registering it. And then also, it's obviously very expensive to sue someone. If you are suing someone for infringing on your copyright and you win, and, it's been, and if you are already registered, then they will have to pay your attorney. You don't have to pay them. copyright. So I just said, as soon as you put your idea on, into a fixed tangible medium of expression, you immediately become the owner. However, there are exceptions. There's a work for hire situation, which most of you will be in that situation this summer if you're 
and internships and arts areas. So let me explain what a work for hire is. This is a really important concept that you really should understand to avoid any legal issues. Basically, if you're an employee of a company, so you're on their payroll, you're using all their resources, they've hired you, then they own what you've made for them. You're making a logo for them, you don't get to take that logo with you. They own it. However, it's, if you're just making a website for them, you're not on their payroll, you're not their employee, then you're an independent contractor. And that situation, unless they've asked you to sign something in writing that says that they will own whatever you make for them, then you still retain those rights. So it's really important over the summer, if you are, when you leave Moore College of the Arts, that you remember, if you make something as an employee of that company, you don't own it. So don't go using it in other places and representing it as your own. Let's say that you're not in a work for hire situation. You own it, you made it here, you own this. So then we could have, you have two options. The options are to sell or to license. And I kind of, there's a very important concept, the difference between intellectual property and physical property. And most people think that they just get it, but it can get confusing when you actually get into a licensing situation. So if you're a fashion student or a fashion designer, if you make <laughs> if you make a design, the pattern that you make, that's your intellectual property. But when you actually make the clothing from that pattern, that's the physical property. So you can license out your design, your intellectual property, or you can sell the clothing. You can take on the burden yourself and you can use your design yourself and sell the clothing. So I want to give you an idea of what you'll see in these licensing agreements. You will probably all come across a licensing agreement down the road if you decide to stay in the visual arts. So first establishes the parties. It could be you, and let's use Target as an example. Between you and Target, you have this great new jean collection that they want to put in all their stores. And then you establishes how you're going to use that, that design, that pattern for those jeans. So suppose you only want them to be able to sell them wholesale and not retail. You can say, you can only use my pattern for this type of thing. You can't use it for everything. You don't have to give them a blanket license to do whatever you want, they want with your design. So you can control that. So make sure you look over the license and really read what it says. Again, I recommend going to an attorney if you're in this type of situation. You can do the lit, you can establish it's only for one year. I'm only gonna, get, I'm gonna do this for one year, see how it goes. If I don't like how it's going, I'm gonna terminate it. You can do the territory. So you can say that I'm only gonna give you a license for South Jersey. I'm not gonna let you sell anywhere else. All the targets in South Jersey, go ahead. How rights can be exploited, something like wholesale, retail, how they're gonna pay, what happens if someone violates the agreement. I said you can use it exclusively, but then I go ahead and sell it to another jean store. What's gonna happen upon a breach? Then what's very important are indemnification clauses. So let's say that you didn't actually make the design for those jeans. You actually saw them in another store, you stole the design. You were panicked, you really needed to get something for this presentation with Target, so you represented it as your own. If the license agreement has an indemnification clause, 
What that means is that if that person who actually owns the copyright to those genes finds Target and sues Target for violating their copyright, infringing on them, you're liable. You'll pay all the damages, you'll pay all the attorney's fees, everything that goes with it, you can be out a lot of money. So before you sign something like an indemnification clause, make sure you're positive that you actually own those rights. So I've told you what is copyright protected, but there are some times when you can use another person's copyright without asking them for permission. I'm going to talk about three different examples, but we're going to focus on fair use, which is going to be applicable to most of you. So first is the religious use exemption. So what this means is that you can perform non-dramatic literary or musical work of a religious nature. So you can perform scenes from the Holy Bible, which that basically means. Then there's fair use. So there are times when you can use someone else's work without the author's permission. And so these are some of the times that you can use them. Criticism, something like a parody, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, research. So like I said before, parody, obviously for news reporting, if you're going to do a story on an artist, you need to be able to show their work. You can't talk about it without showing it to people. Teaching, why are art history professors able to show you all these famous people's art? Because technically you're not allowed to display them because it's for educational purposes. Again, the purpose of copyright law is not to stifle all expression. Scholarship, research, those areas. So these are some blanket categories, but sometimes it's not clear. Is this really a parody? Is this really news reporting? What, what are they, what's going on here? So if someone who owns a copyright sues someone, and when you get into court, the courts apply a four-factor balancing test. So first, I look at the purpose and the character of the use. Is it commercial or nonprofit? <coughs> if someone's making money off of it, you're less likely to get fair use protection. And also, the purpose and character sometimes, if it's transformative, if you're using someone's work to create something completely different, then it's like you're creating a different type of work. What's the nature of the copyrighted work? Published or unpublished, fiction or nonfiction? So published in copyright law means displayed to the public. So if something's unpublished and the world hasn't seen it yet, they want authors to be able to display their work first to the public. So if you're just outing someone else's work, you're less likely to get fair use protection. Also, fiction or nonfiction. Nonfiction is obviously facts. So we don't want to stifle people from retelling a factual story. You're less likely to be able to stop someone else from retelling something's a part of history, even if it's, you know, you've copied some of the themes of the story, in the end of the day, it's a nonfiction book and you're able to get fair use protection. The amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. So a lot of times on TV shows, you'll see that in the background they have this great set and there's a famous photographer's work in the background. Technically, you're not allowed to do that. That's someone else's work. You can't display it to the public. That photographer owns it. But then the television company, when the photographer sues, if they do sue, television company could say, well, it wasn't the whole work. It was just the little corner. You could barely tell it was his. And they would have to fight about how much of the work was actually displayed to the public. 
And then also the effect of the use of the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. So in that television example, the television company might say, look, we're just got you a whole new audience. All these people want your photograph. This is the most famous show on TV. You're going to make more money. Why are you complaining? But then the artist would say, you know, I don't like this mainstream show. I'm too hipster for that, and I just don't want it displayed on this show. And they could say, that's actually going to hurt my credibility in the long run. That's going to affect my market. So that's something that the court will analyze, and ultimately will go through all four factors, and will come up with a, a decision. So I'm going to give you some examples of fair use. So this malted barbie photograph by Tom Forsythe. He said, this is a party. He thinks, bar so Barbies are copyrighted. It's an idea and a fixed tangible medium of expression. So why is he allowed to use this Barbie like this? And he said, you know, for me, Barbies represent the objectification of women. And I put them in these scenarios to make my comment on what they mean. And the court agreed. They said, this is fair use. You know, it's not Barbie being displayed in a stereotypical way. And this is a really recent case. I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but on the left-hand side, these are, are is a photograph from the book Yes Rasta, and on the right-hand side, photograph by Richard Prince called Graduation. And the court said that this is fair use. They said that it's transformative enough as a different purpose and character than the original work. I really wanted to highlight this example because. In my opinion, I think the court got it wrong. Basically what happens in copyright law is you have the right to make your work and you also have the right to create derivative works. And what a derivative work means that, suppose you are doing a screen print and it's all in black and white, and then you want to do a blue series. You have the right because you originally made that print to do that blue series. And for me, this just looks like you know, a blue series. Obviously there's a guitar there and it's a little bit transformative, but it's not completely changing the character of the work. So even though the court ultimately said that Richard Prince was right here, that's not something that's guaranteed. And this, I think, is an example that's very much on the borderline, and it's something that you should be aware of when you're creating your art. In these situations, the court could have said, you know, you have to destroy all of your photographs. And that's what happens. Here, he would have had to destroy his photographs if the court went the wrong way. So then I also said there's a nonprofit exemption. So basically you can do live performances of copyrighted works, songs, plays. If you're not gaining money from them, they're all going towards the towards the nonprofit purpose. So obviously you can do a reasonable cost for organizing the events, but every all the money that you're gaining from the charitable event needs to go to the charity. So that's copyright law. What is a trademark? So in the beginning I said brushing up, so that's your brand. Trademark is a source identification. It can be a word, graphic, sound, color, and smell. And a trademark can be extremely powerful. Someone who did a valuation of Coca-Cola said that it's worth $79.6 billion the company as a whole, and $64.2 billion of value is attached to the Coca-Cola trademark. So that they're goodwill and a brand. People throw around the word trademark, but there's actually two different types of trademarks. There are trademarks and service marks. So it's a source of identification for either a good or a service. Nike is for shoes, a good, so that's a trademark. 
service mark identifies the services of a provider. So UPS is actually a service mark. And in the beginning I said as soon as you put your pen to the paper, you automatically get a copyright. Trademark, is that's somewhat true, but not to the same extent. You do get common law rights in the brand that you start using, but it's very, very limited. You're going to want to register your trademark. So what type of common law rights do you get? Obviously, you no know registrations needed for common law. You can just start using the brand. But you need to actually, use of trademark law means something different. It doesn't mean that you just start using the name brushing up, saying it to friends, throwing, putting up posters, advertising. You need to actually attach the name brushing up to your good and sell that good. It's not enough to, to get ready to sell something. You have to actually use it in commerce. And then you only have very limited rights if you don't register your trademark. So if you sell brushing up only in South Jersey, you'd only be able to prevent people from using that name in South Jersey on that type of product. You can't stop someone that's in Pennsylvania from making the same thing and making the same thing and advertising under that name or a similar invention under that name. You basically can't stop someone from using that name at all. So then there's state law protection. Registration is required to file with the state. Again, you need to use it, you need to sell it within the state. You can renew that right, and but you'd only have rights in Pennsylvania. You couldn't stop someone in New York, can't stop someone in Jersey, you can only stop someone within the state of Pennsylvania. So you want to you have this great idea and you want to stop everyone everywhere in the United States. <laughs> So what you can do is you can file with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Again, registration is required, covers the entire United States, use is required, but you need to use it in interstate commerce. And what that means is that a good that you're selling needs to be shipped to a different state. It can't, it's not enough to just sell it in Pennsylvania, you need to go beyond Pennsylvania. And again, it's renewable, to trademarks you can renew every 10 years into infinity. Copyright lapses after 70 years, but you can have a trademark forever. So let's say down the line, you guys are all extremely successful, have these big companies, and you decide you want to launch a sister company. Brushing Up has become huge. You want to do a sister company for a different line of products, and you know that you want to have rights to the entire United States. So normally you have to actually use the trademark to get federal protection. But in an ITU, an intent to use application, you don't have to actually sell anything. You can, you know, you're launching in six months. You can file this type of application, and it'll hold your place in line. So eventually, you'll have to start using the mark, but you'll have six months before you'll have to do so. So let's say, okay, let me back up. Also, copyrights are pretty easy to file. I would recommend maybe doing one with an attorney. You could probably figure it out on your own. I'm not necessarily advising that, but you could. Um, trademarks are much more complicated. It's something you really want to go to an attorney for if you have the resources. I would find the budget to do it. It's really, really worth it. You want to make sure you're getting the rights to the area that you're thinking about. So let's say you've gone to an attorney, you're going to file, you're, you're filing a, a trademark with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. But the United States Patent and Trademark Office needs to approve your application. So you don't automatically get it as soon as you file. It's possible that they'll deny your application. 
But while it's pending, there's different symbols that you should be using. And, and unlike copyright law, where you don't really have to use a symbol, you do for trademark law. So you do a little TM symbol for a trademark, and it's SM for service mark. And then once your trademark is approved, is, yeah, you want to use this little symbol for both trademarks and service marks. For state registered service marks and trademarks, you can use this symbol and this symbol for service marks. So different trademarks have different strengths, it's, which is a kind of tricky thing to think about as one trademark being stronger than the other, but you want to choose a strong brand. So what is a strong brand? So there's four categories. Let's start with the least strong brand, the weakest. A generic trademark. What is a generic trademark? Something it's ineligible for protection. So if you file an application with the United States Patent Trademark Office for a generic trademark, they'll deny you. Something like shredded wheat, the cereal. Shredded wheat actually is shredded wheat, little pills of shredded wheat. So when the when the cereal said they want to stop other people from using that name, they said no, that's what it is. You can't stop someone from describing the product, that's not fair. So something that's descriptive, this is the next level up. It can be registrable in certain situations, but it needs secondary meaning. What does that mean? So let's say you want to open up an eyeglasses store and you want to call it Vision Center. Vision Center obviously describes what you're providing, but if every time people hear the word Vision Center and they think of you and your company, you've done enough branding, you've made it clear that you're, you are the Vision Center, and you can prove that to the United States Patent Trademark Office with surveys or Google search results or different ways that you can prove it, then they'll register your mark. And then there are also suggestive marks. These are registrable. So something like copper tone for sunscreen. You know, you want to get a nice copper tone when going out in the sun. Um, Greyhounds suggest something moving and transportation. So these are registrable. They're not obvious. They're not descriptive, they're just suggestive. And the strongest trademark that you can have are arbitrary or fanciful trademarks. Something like Xerox or Apple. Apple obviously describes the fruit, but before Apple became famous, when you heard the word Apple, you would never think computers. So if you don't think about that product when you hear that name, then that's an arbitrary or fanciful name. So your goal, before you do all your branding and spend all of your money developing your trademark, make sure you have something that the United States Patent and Trademark Office will approve. I have clients come in all the time and they'll tell me the name of their product and I'll think, oh, I don't, I don't really think that this is gonna get approved. And they might have to rebrand all over. So really think about it when, if you're developing a name. So I told you before that generic marks are unregisterable. Also laudatory phrases. Dunkin' Donuts wasn't allowed to say that they're the best coffee in America. They can't register that. Deceptive marks, geographically misdescriptive and geographically descriptive. So Philadelphia pretzels describes pretzels are being sold in Philadelphia. You can't stop someone from using the word Philadelphia. That's not that's geographically descriptive. Or if you're selling Vermont pretzels in Philadelphia, that's geographically misdescriptive. You're not suggesting where they're actually coming from. And then pretzels obviously is generic if you're actually selling pretzels. And then morally or culturally offensive marks, someone was denied registration of the word Jesus, the name Jesus. 
And then confusingly similar marks aren't registrable, something that's likely to confuse the purchaser. They're likely to think of a different brand other than your brand when you, if you try to register it. So by just adding the word the in front of Pepsi, people are still gonna think Pepsi. You might try to spell it a little differently, but if people hear the name Pepsi and it's spelled like that, it's still gonna be denied registration. And nowadays, Apple has really done a great job of branding themselves with a little I in front of all of the products. So if you're selling a computer product, something called iCharger, people are gonna think that Apple's making that product. So you can't do that either. And then down here we have this famous case where Louboutin shoes and YSL. And the court said that Louboutin does have a trademark. So remember I said in the beginning you can have a trademark for a color. So their trademark is the red sole of their shoes. So they, they sued YSL and they said, you have a red sole, that's our brand. You cannot do that. And the court said, you're right, you do have the brand, the red sole shoe. But here, it's more than just a red sole. It's a monochromatic shoe. It's a whole shoe. So people aren't going to look at that shoe and think necessarily Louboutin. They're going to think, some, they might think something different. So you can't do a red sole that's not monochromatic, but you can do this. And then you might have heard of dumb Starbucks. A lot of people are saying, oh, it's, it's protected by parity. A parody is a copyright defense. It's not a trademark defense. But I do still think, I, so it would probably not be protected. The reason why is for dilution purposes and tarnishment purposes. By someone who owns a famous mark, someone like Starbucks, can stop another person from using that mark if it's gonna lessen its uniqueness. So if dumb Starbuckses are popping up all over the place, selling the same type of coffee, Starbucks is not gonna have as powerful of a brand. It's going to hurt their goodwill. Also, you can stop someone from using an infringing mark that portrays the infringed mark in a negative light. Obviously, putting the dumb in front of Starbucks is trying to cast it in a negative light. So for those reasons, if Starbucks actually wanted to sue the person that popped up dumb Starbucks, they probably wouldn't. Then I thought it was really important to highlight the difference between domain names and trademarks. So unlike trademarks, which have to go through the United States Patent and Trademark Office and go through a review, review process and it's a little bit more complicated than just a stamp and approval, domain names are created by contract and given out on a first come, first serve basis. If Nike.com is available, you can say, I want Nike.com and you can own it. Doesn't mean that they won't try to stop you and sue you from using it down the line. So if you have a, a famous trademark in your domain name, you could own that domain name, but be careful because someone could sue you and you would have to give up that domain name. But that's something that we see very, very often at the law firm is that someone is suing a cyber squatter. So basically what a cyber squatter is are these people that go see these new companies and they realize that this company's gonna make it big. They don't have a, a website yet. I'm gonna buy up this website. And so they'll be trying to go to that person that's taken that website and get them to sell it back to them. So when you're going out there and you're creating a brand and you really want to advertise under that, make sure you try to sign up for that, um, that domain name as soon as possible. Someone might get to you first, get to it first, and you have to end up paying them a lot of money for it, which unfortunately they can do. So. I told you a little, about, a little bit about my career path, but eventually everyone here is going to want to make money in one way or another. In 
order to support your arts career, you need to find a way to market yourself and be able to support yourself. So I've really learned a lot about marketing myself in the professional environment that I am in. And I thought it'd be really important to share that with you guys to the extent that I could. So getting the internship. I cannot stress enough that everything that you submit must be error-free. So if you're submitting a resume with a typo on it, you might think, oh, it's just a little something. But you're representing that as your best self. This is the best I can do is what you're saying by submitting this to a company or to an employer. So you want to make sure that there are absolutely no typos. Have someone else read it over. Professionalism is so important. We completely just get rid of candidates if they have, if we take writing samples. If you submit a writing sample and there's an error in it, we don't even look any further. We're like, this is someone who's sloppy. So make sure that everything's error-free. I don't mean to scare you, but it's just the truth of the matter. <laughs> and then update your website and portfolio. So right, a lot of you probably have websites where you put your portfolio on your website. Maybe freshman year you were just doing painting and drawing, but then you discovered video art. And now all you do is video art, and you want to get an internship with someone doing video art over the summer. They type in your name into Google, and they go to your website, and they only see paintings and drawings. They're going to be like, what is this person talking about? They're not a video artist. They're a painter and a drawer. And then, so you want to make sure that you update your website so you can really portray yourself as a person you're advertising yourself to be. And for me, I update my bio. I update my bio all the time. I can't say that I'm a lawyer who's in the arts if I don't have anything on my bio that says that I've done anything in the arts. Manage your social networking image. Nowadays, most of you will have Facebook accounts, Instagram accounts, whatever accounts you have. We look up all of everyone on Facebook to see if there's something there that could really portray them in a negative light. You want to make sure that there's nothing on there. You want to just make it private. Make it all private. Don't allow employers to access that. So if you've done so already, make your Facebook profile private and don't accept friend requests from anyone that you're not sure who they are. Be prepared for interviews. When someone asks you, why do you want to work for me? Make sure it's not just because I have, I want to do video arts. Because I want to do video art for you for this reason. Have a reason. Say something specific to them. People feel good when you compliment them. Give them a compliment. That's what you should do. And at the interview, think about your brand. So if you're applying for, for me, I apply for positions with law firm. So I have to go dressed in a suit because I'm portraying myself as an attorney. If you're going into a somewhat corporate environment, make sure you wear the suit, you, you portray yourself in a professional manner. It'd be different than if you're going to applying for an apprenticeship with an artist. They're just two different things. Think about what you're applying for, how you should present yourself, what's your brand, you want to dress for the job, you want to act in a manner like someone who is going to get that type of job. And after the interview, follow up. It is so important to send thank you emails, to remind them of who you are, what you talked about, add things about your conversation. After the internship, so important to stay in touch. Make sure that you ask them out for coffee if you're still in the area. Say that you want to get lunch, whatever you can do. And then while you're, if you've left more and you're still looking to stay, get connected in the community, 
get involved based on your strengths. If you're good at lecturing, do lectures. If you're good at going to networking events, go to networking events. If you're good at writing articles, write articles. Whatever you're good at doing, make sure you do that. Don't say I can do everything because most of us have some type of weaknesses and it's better to play up your strengths than to just do everything. And if you do go to networking events, it's so important to not arrive late. Oftentimes, it's I try to go early and I go to, to people when they're by themselves and they're more approachable. So get there early or arrive on time. And then make sure you actually talk to people. Showing up is not enough. I think this is something that's very hard, at least for me. You need to ask for what you want. If you want a job with someone, say, you know, I'm really interested in working for you. I want this job. They might not know by you talking to them that you want to work for them. So make sure you say, this is what I'm interested in for, interested in. And you'd be surprised by how many times you can get what you want by just asking for it. And you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. I've learned this lesson a thousand times. There is, what's the worst that can happen by telling someone that you want the job? They could say, I don't think we have a position available. Move on, next one. You're, it will work eventually. And again, follow up after the internship. So that's all I really have for you all today. Does anyone have any questions? <laughs> yes. Um, so with the copyright laws, this, there's a problem that I see a lot where they have people of other countries taking their stuff off their websites and then reprinting it. Mm -hmm. How would you fight something like that? That's very complicated with international laws because there are different, some it depends if they're signed to treaties with the United States, sometimes there's nothing that you can do. So it would really depend on the country and the situation. So I can't really advise exactly on that. But I wouldn't know something more specific. But you can always go to somewhere like the Philadelphia Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts and they could give you a little bit of background into that. Or if you have something more specific you want to look into and you want to ask me later, I'm happy to tell you. Yes? When you say that as soon as you write something down, it's your idea. Like, how far does that go? Is it, like, your sketchbook, is that basically able to copyright? Mm-hmm. Everything you're copyright, you own the copyright to everything. Every drawing, individually, you have the copyright. And then as a compilation, you own the copyright to that. So yes, your sketchbook is copyrighted. Um, so if you were to be a part of a company, and would it be possible to get it somewhere in your contract that you can still take whatever work you've done for them and use it as an example of your work, so long as you don't sell it? Definitely. It's something, so that's a great part of contract law. You can contract for anything. You can ask whatever you want. So I think that it's important that if you want that right, that you ask for it and say that this is something that you want to be doing. I think that most companies, obviously, you should ask for permission to do something like that. But if you're not going to sell it, most companies won't try to sue you for just saying that this is my talent, this is what I'm capable of doing, and you're not showing that design to another company so that company can steal it. So, But yes, that's something that you can put in the contract. You say you don't want to give all the work that you give to the company. You know that you want to take those designs with you. You're only going for the summer. You can ask for it, um, and they may or may not give it to you. Can I just interject? On your contract, do you guys remember there's a part where we've actually put that in there on the internship contract? It's asked for you if you have the right to use it for your portfolio. Looking ahead, more is thinking ahead. <laughs> yes? Uh, what could you do with where, like, what if you actually come up with an idea and you make it tangible, but somebody steals it and then they copyright it or 
but you made it first, so you own the copyright, and I can't do that. So you can sue them for doing that. So it wouldn't really matter that they had the copyright being valid because they weren't actually the author. Questions? Yeah. How much does it cost if I wanted to meet you and go through one trademark procedure? Like, how much would that cost? So it really depends um, on how complicated the trademark is. But so a box Rothschild in particular would probably you'd have to pay a filing fee of around two hundred fifty dollars, no matter what. Um, one hundred fifty dollars. I apologize. Um, but then to meet with an attorney. It's an hourly rate, so it would probably cost around five hundred dollars. Uh, for social media problems, like my name happens to be really common, so whenever you Google my name, you get other people mm -hmm. who use like their full name for their Facebook and Twitter, and that pops up first. Mm -hmm. Do they know that's not me, or? Well, I think it just depends, obviously, if there's a picture facing you in person, then they would know that that's not you. But if they hadn't, there's, there's nothing you can't stop other people from using their own name. So names in general aren't copyrighted. So you couldn't, and obviously people will have their name, but you couldn't stop that. So I'm just saying to the extent that you can, you just don't want to get into a situation that's your own doing. If you can avoid it, you should. Yes. Um, the Shepard Ferry back in the elections with the uh, Associated Press photo that was used for his poster, do you know if that case ever had a conclusion? It was settled, so okay. we don't know actually what would happen with fair use there. Um, so unfortunately, can't look to that for any guidance, but they, they did settle. That was the Hope poster. Yeah, the Barack Obama, you know, you saw that poster that was all different, the reds and blues. Um, it looked exactly like that picture, but it was it did transform it. It became a print instead of a photograph, but it was the same expression. It was using the underlying work. Underlying work was it a derivative work, like we said for the other photograph? Was it fair use? I think the court could have fun with analyzing something like that. I sure could. So, but we definitely don't know because the party settled. Uh, the Starbucks thing. They mm -hmm. say on their all the time that they don't understand fully um, so I don't know if they consulted with attorneys or not but I, I can't imagine that they did fair use protects trade uh, copyright law not trademark law so the name Starbucks is a trademark it's a brand so it wouldn't protect that um, so a lot of people are spreading that around as a defense for everything that they've done I've heard that as a public uh, publicity stunt. I'm not sure that Starbucks wasn't in on it to begin with. I'm not really sure what happened there. But um, no, it was not protected by fair use. And that's a great thing. The internet is not necessarily spreading the truth, as you may, may or may not realize by now. Definitely don't believe everything you read. That's something that you've probably given, been given as advice before, but it's, it's really true. Just because it's, that's what they say they're using as their legal defense wouldn't hold up in court. Yes. If you make something and someone takes it and copyrights it first, how do you prove that you did it first? Well, so that's why you should probably register it as soon as you've done it, if you can. But um, you would if you put the date at the bottom of a lot of your work. So if there's a date at the bottom, that could establish that. If you displayed it at a show, it would depend what it is. Like if you're making a website, I'm pretty sure like um, there's 
history there. It can show you when it's been put up and everything like that. If it's a sketch, I would recommend putting a date at the bottom of everything. Um, but you just have to use circumstantial evidence to try to prove it to the best you could. So, which is why I do recommend, even though you don't have to, you should copyright things that you're going to want to sell eventually. Yes. Um, if um, someone, say you're doing a show, a jury show or something, and just arbitrary people just coming by and just taking a lot of pictures of your work, mm -hmm. do you have any rights to ask? So that's your painting you get to display. They're technical. They can't. They can take it for their personal use, but they can't then go display that to the public. And they really shouldn't be taking those photographs in general if they're going to be. What? Yeah. So you can say. Because they really want it. Right. So technically, they're not allowed to do that. They're not allowed to at least display those photographs to the public. You own that right as the artist. Um, you can only do what you can to stop people. I don't think, obviously, you can physically restrain them unless you can say no cameras and make people check them at the door or something like that, or to the extent the gallery has people in charge or wherever you're displaying them. Every self, I mean, it's really, it's tough. People are going into uh, museums and taking pictures of famous pieces and they're selling them in the gallery. It's really unfair. It's really just an unfair thing about um, people's access to cameras, but it's kind of the reality that we live in, so I would just make sure you're on the lookout for people trying to sell those photographs. Well, and if, they're, if they post it, say they post it on Twitter or, or, or wherever, are they allowed to do that? They're not selling it, they're not benefiting from it monetarily. No, but they're still, that's like the whole, so that's only one of the factors, the commercial factor, but that's using the whole work, and it's in whatever context, you have to look at all those factors, and they wouldn't be allowed to do something like that. Pinterest boards, people put things up on Pinterest boards all the time. And they think, just because people do things, people have other people's copyrights on their websites. Um, I once had a client call me, and I went, he was doing some type of sporting website, and he had all the flyers stuff all up on his website. It's like, did you ask for permission for this? It's like, no, but everyone does it. That's not reason that you're allowed to do it. If they decide to come after you, they can. So you can go after someone. It's just expensive to sue someone, you, so you have to decide how much it's worth it to actually get them. You can always go to, another thing that's worth mentioning is, even if you don't have the financial resources to hire an attorney for litigation, they can always send a cease and desist letter to someone, and they're extremely powerful. If they're on attorney letterhead, they won't cost a lot of money for an attorney to do for you, um, and they can just scare someone into stopping. So I would try that if it's worth it to you before you move forward with something. Yes? Like the um, movies that I like to watch, I would cause a scene that looked great and it would feel painting of like screenshot. Is that like somebody owns the rights to the movie, but is the fact that I'm painting it enough to make it? Well, it's just a screenshot of a scene of the the picture, so it's not the whole movie, right? So it's a very small portion of the movie. So again, it could, something you want to think about. It's technically not yours. You didn't set it up. Um, I think I can't give you advice as to one way or another whether it would definitely be okay because um, they do own the copyright in that, but it would have to go through the fair use analysis. So technically, that is a copyright issue that you should be aware of. It's kind of at your own risk if you want to keep doing something like that. <coughs> Are there any other questions? One more question then. 
I was always under the impression that clothing can be copyrighted because it's wearable. It's not actually a piece of art unless it is actually art itself. Um, right. So what you're saying is that the, the pattern itself is copyrighted? I was just kind of confused, so I just wanted to and no, no problems. That's a, definitely a tricky area. So the functional aspects of clothing aren't copyrightable. So you can't stop someone from making a functional shirt. But if your shirt is different in a non-functional way from other people's shirts, or the jeans are some type of embellishment or pattern on the jeans, that's copyrightable. That design is. So it's something that's non-functional as the piece of that clothing. So clothing is copyrightable, but it's only to the extent that it's not part of like a regular pair of jeans. That makes sense. Because I know Forever Twenty One's been taken to court a lot because they've cut, like copied top designers all the time. But I like from what I understand is that they always won the case because it was so hard to like say like oh this is like they definitely copied it even though to me it looks like the same exact thing. Right. So it just depend on if you can prove that it's non-functional, which is definitely a difficult thing to prove. So it is harder for clothing designers than it is for other type of artists for sure, but there are battles that you can win and there have been copyright cases where artists, uh, designers have won those cases. It really just depends. Is the part of content and what you see in a knockoff case mm -hmm. the intent to be someone part of that? Bad faith can go into it, but um, it's not necessarily a factor, but it can, it can, it really would just make you liable for more damages if you're proven to have bad faith. Well, thank you very much.